right. Welcome to Pod Like a Hole. This is uh, your podcast where three friends discuss uh, ex-record store employees. We discuss music in new and exciting ways. In our first season, we talked about Nine Inch Nails. In our second season, we covered David Bowie, all of their albums, all their tracks. Um, now we're in our third season, which we call it Run the Gamut. It is a Frankenstein collage of just one album by artists we really want to discuss. And so it's all over the place. We've covered... You know, Massive Attack to Bruce Springsteen, to The Clash, to Pink Floyd, all over the place. Um, but something funny happened in our journey. Uh, somewhere in there, um, I, I connected with an author who wrote a book called Into the Never, which was like an, an analysis of the back, background of Nine Inch Nails' Downward Spiral. Perfect. Perfect fodder for this show. And we, we had him on. We had author Adam Steiner on. And uh, great conversation great conversation and lo and behold uh following our trajectory uh, uh i'd like to say we've inspired you adam um i you don't have to put that in your book or anything i don't you don't need to like you know file a retraction or anything but i think you know we inspired you <laughs> to follow up nine inch nails with david bowie so so uh you're welcome um but <laughs> listen absolutely happy to have you back here Absolutely have you back here. So today we're going to be talking with Adam Steiner about his new book, uh, Shadows and Silhouettes, or Silhouettes and Shadows. Got that wrong. This is the first lines from the album Scary Monsters, and that's the album the book is focusing on, which is one of our favorite David Bowie albums during season two. Um, and of course, I'm here with co-host Stephen. Hi, Stephen. And uh, talking to Mr. Adam Steiner. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Hello. And that, and the book is fantastic. I, I, I read it uh, cover to cover in a couple weeks and um, was riveted the entire time. And, you know, it's it's for the Eric heads out there. Um, that's the, the, you know, our, our listeners that uh, enjoy uh, my deep dives into lyric analysis and uh, 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 just themes and getting just kind of lost in in the bog of like, the backstory and what was going on politically and you know oh yeah the, the character's own biography like your writing is excellent for that because uh, and i don't want to i don't want to uh oversimplify it because you have plenty of nuances in it but what i've noticed in these two books is you know you kind of open the page on the on the on the album and then you get into a track by track each chapter is a track um, and sure, you talk about like the background of recording the song and you pull from all sorts of great like research on that on, on other writings that have happened or interviews um, and you get into the lyrical themes and then you seem to like definitely have like a a topic you want to that you want to discuss that is related to whether it's the song themes or something was happening in the artist's life uh, or something that was happening politically that probably influenced the album and you go into it in the chapter definitely will tangent into those areas, but always come and come back to what that song is. And uh, I don't know, I think it adds a lot of weight to that album, make it to the album. It makes it feel like, you know, it's got a place there in history. Um, and so I, you know, I love reading your books um, and appreciate you showing up today. Cool. Thank you. Definitely. So scary monsters, great choice. Um, and when we last left you, um, we were talking about Nine Inch Nails and you had been in the spiral for a while. Uh, <laughs> you've been in the spiral and that's a place to be. That's a place to be, right? Um, 
And then, you know, we talked to you, new book had just come out and um, you had your sights set on, on scary monsters. I, I know it definitely came up in our conversation. I don't know if you had chosen it as your next topic yet, but I, we knew, you know, you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And do you think that your experience in researching Nine Inch Nails and Downward Spiral had anything kind of to do with that as your next choice? Were you still, were you still in the spiral when you, when you knew you wanted to go towards scary monsters next? <laughs> that's a great question thanks eric um yeah do you know what i think the short answer is i don't know um <laughs> i was definitely <clears throat> in the spiral as you say uh when the book came out and like shortly you know before it coming out um like with yourselves i was doing loads of uh podcast interviews and writing lots of uh blog posts and trying to work in some extracts and things just to kind of like help plug the book and get it out there it was my first my first non-fiction book and um, I was really hoping to connect with fans but also try and bring in new people who were always kind of knew the album weren't hardcore nin fans but kind of curious about it and wanted to like know more about the background and some of the tangents that shoot off of it um, and I think you kind of um, oh, nailed my style there <laughs> when you're talking about the two books where it's like you know I I, I love the I love some of the nitty-gritty about um, what was going on in the studio uh, analyzing lyrics is a really interesting, fun thing to do, but just, you know, you can go endlessly. And I don't think there's generally right or wrong interpretations, you know, unless you're trying to uh, hammer down exactly what the singer songwriter was trying to get off their own chest, that, that it's quite hard to say that like any interpretation is, is completely off. There's always ways to argue it. And then some of the things surrounding the records, like, um, you know, social and political context, um, musical movements or uh, styles at the time. Um, And I think for me, yeah, something like Scary Monsters is a natural evolution from the downward spiral. Um, The albums have loads in common in terms of anger and uh, frustration, which is, you know, similar to anger, but um, is perhaps more mannered and intelligent and thoughtful in the... um, they're the things that uh, upset you about the world, about the world, and block you sometimes in your ambitions and where you'd like to be. So um, I think all of that kind of boils over on both records. Um, and as much as much um, venom and uh, rage is is in there, there's also like they're, they're really interesting. Um, melodically interesting, technically interesting records. They have a very strong kind of production style. Uh, I think on both of them, you're very much in someone's head when you're listening to it. That's the kind of sensation you have. It's almost like a spooling of thoughts on different uh, issues and challenges. Uh, So they do have a lot in common, but I I don't think at the time I was thinking my next book should be on David Bowie. I think I was thinking, wow, there's a lot of connections here. Uh, between Nine Inch Nails and obviously very specifically Trent Reznor, um, the man behind the organ that is Nin. Um, it's got to stop saying Nin, Nine Inch Nails. And, um, the, you know, there's um, there's so many weird little things there where he talked about Bowie's Low album uh, from 76, 76, 77, 77, uh, as a major inspiration on the downward spiral. And to me, I didn't really hear that at first, aside from things like Crystal Japan and A Warm Place. I, I didn't really know what he was on about, but when you go through it, you see like the the um, sharp contrast between Bowie's really fragmented, tortured, 
neo-blues uh, kind of jams, these really short, sharp little confessionals. And then these obviously very abstract ambient sections, which have a lot of emotional content to them, but largely um, without lyrics. Um, you know, certainly without singing most of them. And Resna really captured that and, and in a way kind of updated it for um, the alternative rock generation in the early 90s, which is a, a you know, a broad sweeping uh, categorization to make. So a lot in common with the records. And then little things were um, that popped up where uh, Pinion, um, the early instrumental from the Broken al mini album slash EP, uh, that samples It's No Game, um, the part number one. From the opening track of Scary Monsters. So there's that weird little like uh, technical connection. And then um, the more I was researching, Reznor said actually that Scary Monsters was his gateway Bowie album. You know, being the age that he is, uh, I think, oh God, born in the 60s um, or the 70s. Um, yeah, you know, being he the age would have been like, he would have been like, he would have been just around the same age that I was when I gotten the nine snails when scary monsters came out the early yeah. teenage years so yeah yeah exactly so 1980 and so it's that thing of where um, i think i said this in the nine snails book right when you're a teenager music for a lot of people music's like one of the most important things going on in your actually very small um an intense frustrated world and so those are the really seminal uh, listening experiences you have that never really change you so um another example for me would be something like um hearing Radiohead's The Benz album, which came out in 95, and I was, when I was nine, so I was, you know, came to it belatedly, but just a few years after, um, and that's a record, you know, that really stayed with me, and I know all the lyrics still, and that kind of thing. And so such a good, such a good record, sorry. <laughs> the Benz is great, sorry, go on. <laughs> that's cool, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tick. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, so Scary Monsters was his... Um, you know, almost like his generation's uh, Bowie record. And then he ended up working backwards to something like Lowe. So even though Lowe has a more direct connection on something like the Downward Spiral, uh, it's Scary Monsters that I think sort of like first woke him up to Bowie. Um, and that's a relatively similar experience for me. But um, 20, yeah, like 20 years later, <laughs> you know, in the early, uh, yeah, like 2001 or something, Let's not forget also that uh, if you remember your M2 lore, MTV2, yes, when they first started in the late 90s, they had these clips of artists talking about bands that influenced them. And they had uh, Trent Reznor talking about the underwater piano sound from Ashes to Ashes being directly influencing the underwater piano sound at the end of Closer. So that's uh, nice. There's your, there's your definite comparison right definite. yeah that's great that's a great little bit i think that's yeah. actually what made me as a teenager uh that uh seek out scary monsters when they started going through my david bowie thing i was like oh yeah that's the uh that's the it's the underwater piano sound i gotta i gotta get this record so yeah yeah mission accomplished and you you hear those you hear those strange things or something like the single and um it takes you back to the album and you're like well the album's nothing really like Ashes to Ashes, you know, it's like Crystal Japan maybe, but like the rest of it, it's um, it's way more uh, anarchic and out there and um, still really melodic, but in like quite a fierce, uh, urgent kind of way. You know, the songs kind of go bum, 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 bum. It's quite, um, it's quite a relentless sort of album. So Ashes to Ashes comes as like a real reprieve, you know? 
yeah, no, that's a great point. A lot of the record is very rocking, very driving, um, mm. danceable at times, but Ashes to Ashes is its own little world inside the record. And yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll leave Nine Inch Nails in the rear view uh, now, but Justin, I've told this story on the show so many times where any cool crit I ever got from it has completely dried up. But I did get to go to that the the tour where they played together, where Bowie and Nine Inch Nails played together. It was really cool, um, and you uh-huh. know, I definitely saw people leaving after Nine Inch Nails. We stuck around, and it was great. It was great, and it was my introduction yeah. to a lot of his songs. Although I did was listening to Outside regularly before I saw the concert. But anyways, back in the in the mm-hmm. in the in the in the parking lot on the way out, there were the you know some older Bowie fans, and they're like, "You don't even know who he is," or whatever. They were they were doing Gatekeeper. I'm like, I stayed for the whole show. And I, and I said, but I, I said, of course I do. I've seen Labyrinth and uh, I was hoping that would, uh, they just left me alone and walked away. But I, I thought that would give me some points for that. I don't know. But hey, you, yeah, you, and you definitely connect all like the frustrations in his lyrics in there. Um, he's in an uneasy place pretty much, Bowie, on this, on, on every, on every track. Um, you know, and I thought it, you know, I found it relatable. A lot of it was about like the Thatcher Reagan politics of, you know, the early eighties and, you know, both of our countries, uh, Adam have been through some, you know, been through the ringer politically in the last few years, not out of it yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, uh, but you know, you, uh, you find that Bowie really has no answers for us. Um, but I still find, I still find it com- uh, com- I still find myself comforted by him to know that. So. Um, yes. I, sorry, I was just going to say, I think in terms of like being through the ringer, you know, um, it's the uh, it's the price and perhaps the reward of living in a safe Western democracy, <laughs> you know, where we have so much. Um, but it comes with its own weird little challenges and problems, you know. Um, it's, like a, it's like having a dishwasher, you know. <laughs> it requires like, it's a luxury good in, in so many ways, luxury white good. And it makes your life easier and it buys you potentially it buys you leisure time, you know, the ultimate kind of like um, capitalist sort of dream. But um, it costs you in other ways when you have to get it repaired and you have to buy the special tablets and maintain it and things and it needs loading and unloading. So it's, <laughs> this is a crazy metaphor. Yeah, Sorry, you gotta still, as, a, as a man that, uh, yes, I've, 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 I'm the family's air quotes dishwasher. And <laughs> yeah. you've, you've got to, you've got to always make time to fill it. You got to make time to take it out and put the dishes in the right place. It's still, yeah. It's work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, I get it's it. I feel it. It's genuinely a labor saving device, but it has its issues. And uh, going back to Bowie, um, it's really weird because, you know, Thatcher came in, um, I believe, like right in the autumn of 79, um, if I remember correctly, uh, and Reagan not long after. And um, the, you know, the two of them do seem to have had this really strong conservative axis um, over the Western world. Uh, and trying to constantly trying to reinforce that in quite um, I wouldn't even say masculine but quite like forceful sort of ways and just to reassert themselves on what we imagine as the world stage Uh, but in terms of Bowie it's weird because you know he was um, living all over the world um, you know jetting from place to place on tour things like that traveling you know because he could which I completely understand if you're a boy from uh, Brixton you want to get out there and see the world away from your um you know, suburban London semi. And um, he's in this, he's in this weird space, but it, the album was all like kind of done and dusted by, uh, 
I believe it was like end of April or something of 1980. And then it came out, you know, much later in um, September. So point is, um, you know, a lot of this stuff happened, a lot of the major stuff we're talking about happened after it. But I feel that he almost looked around the corner uh, towards the future and saw it then in his present and could just, not that he saw the way the world was going to go, but he could feel um, a sense of that shifting atmosphere and that changing kind of um, social attitude that reverted back to the individual away from, you know, the idea of uh, a society in which we're all um, connected and sharing similar values, perhaps. That's just that kind of fragmentation. And he felt that, and I think he just put a lot of that into the record. And it's almost like he was really, really venting, perhaps like more personally than he'd ever done before. And these were things that bugged him and um, get right up your nose, as he says in some of his lyrical, uh, draft lyrical notes. And uh, I just find that fascinating that he he sort of saw where things were heading. And then with Let's Dance in 83, he'd kind of bought into that uh, new dream of the shiny, um, shiny 80s, a time of prosperity and um, let's be happy instead of like the bad old days of the 1970s. And, you know, all of those are like cliches and stereotypes, but I think um, he was kind of a part of that process as well, just by virtue of being a pop star. Yeah, CEO Bowie it was is what I've seen writers refer to that era of when he's in his suits. And, and yeah. I totally see it. You know, I think it's Bowie, so he's playing a character and at times probably parroting that, um, that mm-hmm. kind of Wall Street type. But then at, at, at times, you know, he like, you know, he had to make those hits too. So, uh, absolutely. Um, but hey, uh, one of the other frustrations you talk about, um, and it comes up on what I know is one of Steven's favorite tracks on the album, Teenage Wildlife. Uh, the song, mm. you know, it's kind of a catty swipe at Gary Newman. Um, and and Bowie would do another sure. one of those, like in the black tie, white noise era against Madonna in one of his B-sides. Um, so he did this a few times with the, the, the new kind of like upstarts. He'd, he'd, he'd try to take them down a peg or two. I guess my question around that, and I love that you, how you point that out in that chapter, but my question, I guess, is like during this era, and if you follow even this through the nineties, do you think ego was something that Bowie would need to overcome or was it, you know, more adding to his art, improving it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, you know, starting from ego, it's um, it's the power that helps you to uh, assert yourself in the world and also to um, find your own individuality along the way and have confidence in that. Like someone like Bowie did, you know, uh, the, the issue for him in the later 80s, he seemed to not only run out of um, a bit of momentum and energy uh, somewhat, but also just um, some confidence as well to know what was good, to know what was right, to be instinctively decisive and to move on that. You know, and not have to delay and demure and um, not to work hard, but to work very, very hard in a short, focused space of time and to just get things down, get things done and keep spontaneity and energy. Um, in terms of teenage wildlife, I think it's um, typically, I think the answer is various. <laughs> uh, for me, it's it's people like Newman. Um, and Bowie was obviously taking his own cues from people. You know, he talks a lot about... Um, he would talk at the time around like, oh, I hope to be producing um, Devo's next album, um, which I think was Brian Eno in the end. Um, and then he talked a lot about things like Talking Heads, very closely related to Bowie-esque styles. 
Um, and he would go and see like the Human League, who were just getting started. Well, in terms of mainstream success, just getting started at that time. So he was, you know, he took as much as he gave, I think, and that's harder to admit to. But in terms of um, people like Newman, I think he saw people um, perhaps taking too much from him and failing to uh, fully realise their own style. Um, I don't think that's fair with someone like Newman. I think he, you know, very quickly um, reinvented himself as a, a solo synth-pop artist, in, you know, after the punk era, uh, and had, like, really, you know, really well-crafted songs and albums. And, like, Pleasure Principle, um, you know, which has cars on it, it's, like, a really good album. I think it's 79. It's a really good album. And to me, I, I'm sort of like, this doesn't really have anything to do with David Bowie. It does in terms of some of the sonics. Um, but... You know, it's it's a it's the leap forward. So I don't know if there's maybe some um, resentment that he'd been kind of leapfrogged by people he'd inspired. But as I say, it, I think it, I think it's really important to note that it was reflexive. There's there's people um, doing their music that uh, aped Bowie, and in turn, he then perhaps felt that people would think he was copying them. So there was like a you know a kind of combine harvester type effect going of like everything being recycled. But um, I think also he struggled with the idea that someone like Newman, who exploded you know, very quickly, very big, and then kind of imploded shortly afterwards, uh, and things kind of collapsed uh, in terms of his fan base and the esteem with which he was held by the record label, which is you know one of the main arbiters of taste and being successful as a recording artist. If you don't have the label support um, and management fall away, then you kind of got nothing. Um, you're on your own looking for studio time, if you can afford it. And um, I think he was sort of put out by the idea that people thought you could just become a pop star overnight and remain credible. Um, you know, he had a really, for him, I think he would have called it a, a long, hard slog at the start, but he was super, you know, he's really young um, when he was trying to get into music in the first instance. And then it was um, Space Oddity, re-released Man Who Sold The World it didn't quite look back but it wasn't really until Ziggy Stardust that he had a hit in 72 so I think he felt he'd really put in his dues at the start he changed the nature of the musical landscape very quickly um, by killing off Ziggy and then jumping forward to the plastic soul thing um, breezing through something like Station to Station and then doing what we call the Berlin Trilogy being very archly experimental with synths and electronic music um, and I think he sort of felt that he'd really got a lot of like adventurous credibility behind him, but other people were perhaps settling for uh, a watered down version of some of the things that he'd done and saying, this is my, <clears throat> this is my music, this is what I stand for, but they hadn't quite found a distinctive voice yet. Um, and I don't necessarily want to point fingers, you know, you could say someone like, um, Duran Duran, you know, they, they were their own thing, um, Japan, you know, loads of those bands, they definitely have lots of Bowie-esque aspects to them. And for me, they didn't all quite set the world alight, whereas someone like um, Simple Minds was that bit, uh, you know, they were extremely art rock, post-punk. They were quite typically different from what was going on around them. And that that's really, really endured, whereas I think it's easier to write off people like um, Duran Duran, uh, just being more of a throwaway pop affectation so I think there was maybe some uh, resentment there and it was just the fact that 
age and being an established artist was creeping up on him. He was only 33 at the time, yeah. but I think he felt all of his 33 years. Yeah, much, much like uh, in American sports and you know maybe sports across the pond, uh, mm. uh, musical artists and uh, athletes, their ages, their, yeah, being a veteran happens to them a lot sooner than us in uh, the real world. So yeah, 33 sure. is a, sure. definitely a dinosaur in the uh, the pop rock world back then. Yeah, 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 it's it's it, it's funny that Gary Newman seemed like such a it's just very strange to me, but yeah, like Eric mentioned, that's my favorite song in the record. Uh, probably one of my favorite David Bowie songs, one of my favorite songs. Yeah, and definitely, it just always the two things about it that strike me is odd on that track. One is that Gary Newman seems like such a strange artist for him to pick on, if you will, because when I listen to Gary Newman, I don't hear. Uh, Gary Newman sounds like Gary Newman to me. Uh, he sounds like he's influenced by uh, himself uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Krautrock. Not David Bowie yeah. as much to me. Um, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not hearing it. And yeah. um, it just seemed like a strange thing for him to obsess over, Gary Newman of all people. Also, Gary Newman seems harmless in a way. So it's kind of, it's just yeah, a guy to go after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gary Newman always strikes me as like, hey, he's just happy to be here. He's Gary Newman. Um, and then also, the, that song sounds so romantic. And mm. if you weren't paying attention to the lyrics, it sounds uh, way more uh, tender than it really is. Uh, it's a, that's, I guess that's a good, you know, that's a, that's a good dichotomy of how Bowie could be. He could write something that sounds very heartfelt, sounds very romantic. But at the heart of it, he's uh, singing about these jaded emotions and uh, these young Turks that are, you know, biting his style. So it's, it's yeah, a, it's a cool blend, and there's so much. Um, there's so much. Uh, there's a you know, there's there's traces of you know acidity and bitterness at the same time, and I think also it's a, it's um a little bit of uh him also throwing off any kind of crown that might have been placed upon him uh, by the people coming afterwards. You know, he's um there's this weird thing where he he mentions himself directly in the song, which is so like you know, odd and kind of meta to me. Um, it is like, absolutely you know, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite Bowie moments is that, you know, yeah, I walk down yeah. the hallway and people say, David, what are you doing? Or whatever the line is. Yeah. It's just, it's so, yeah. what are you and doing it, walking it is, down hallways? It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's really strange. And cause and, and it's, as I think I mentioned in the book, it's kind of an obsessive, it's actually a little bit of an obsessive theme in the, uh, in the album of, you know, being boxed in and walled in and too closely defined. And, you know, he's, he's some kind of figurehead and he knows he's, someone that you know especially you know from the blitz kids era and all that stuff he's he's someone who in the late 70s especially the next generation next generation musicians really really looked up to and he's kind of like yes i know i am great but all i ever did uh was my own thing i never did anything out of the blue um and just plowed his own thing and he's like you should really do that yourself and um you know kind of throwing the crown off at the same time as like, I can't help you with my problems. I barely know what I'm doing myself. Uh, you know, I'm running from thing to thing to thing. And that's that's where I think sort of he was still in a um, the aftermath of what you might call like a recovery phase um, without necessarily nailing that to issues of addiction perhaps, but just trying to um, resettle his life, excuse me, being a bit more mature. He goes through a divorce in that period. 
Um, he gets custody of his son. He settles down that bit more and eventually like buys the place in Switzerland. So he has a base, which is, you know, the kind of thing he always like throws out in interviews. is like, yeah, I think I might go and live in Japan in the future, you know, in a wooden log house that you build together out of these sections. It's like, okay, he never did that. But, um, you know, all the, all this thing about being rootless and, um, I, you know, shifting identity and, and so on. Uh, he never quite walked it like he talked it. And I think he was probably a bit self-aware of that and that made him vulnerable. Like any artist, you know, you reach for the thing. You don't get the exact thing that you're reaching for. But damn, if you get close to it, then you get a sense of it and you know that you've done something worthwhile. And so I think all of that was kind of um, playing upon his uh upon his emotions at the time and also kind of preying upon his um preying upon his status where he tried to reassert himself but tried to do it perhaps from a place um outside of too much ego so not that i am the best artist but i understand that people look up to me but i didn't do this for that kind of adoration i did it for the art i assume um you know he would often say he's a very private person which is ironic given that you're a very public figure and people want to know about you, you tour, they, they, they're they looking forward to every next release and so on. You know, it's a very contradictory kind of place to be. Um, and I, I think one of the things on the album, something like Teenage Wildlife, and then you've got um, Because You're Young and so on, a recurring theme on the album is actually kind of like being young and the innocence of that and the kind of joie de vivre and the, the powerful, <clears throat> excuse me, the powerful um, bulletproof, <laughs> of being um you know of um of not knowing things and working things out as you go along uh, and improvisation and being very present and active in the moment um and already at you know kind of 33 you're experiencing the fade of that the loss of that the shift away into maturity uh potentially middle age you know i i I, and I do wonder like what you're saying there and looking at kind of Bowie's own ego journey, like we know what happened in the eighties bigger than ever. And then, you know, critically kind of falling off. And then, and I know Steve, I'm not allowed to really mention this on the podcast anymore, <laughs> but Tin Machine was an experiment that um, didn't go over super well, but he was inspired by it. Right. Bowie was pretty inspired by my shot. And... My shot collar is not working every time. I know. You <laughs> Tin Machine, you're supposed to get a shot. <laughs> But uh, but it, but maybe he came out of that a little a little like wiser in that department as far as like you know back to basics playing small clubs not really being the darling anymore right I don't know something something your your words yeah, are making me think it about was, there yeah and it's like um it's like you said about the Nine Inch Nails tour and in some ways it would seem like a desperate grasp at relevance but it was also kind of paying his dues like I will go and tour in these places but obviously i'm not going to go and play let's dance i'm just not going to do that um and i think if i'm correct like a lot of his set was made up of quite choice tracks and then there was a little bit of time given over to over to some hits um you know for as far back as ziggy stardust which by then was relatively ancient given what was going on in the music world and um and also like you know uh playing alongside Reznor doing uh, manage nail songs so I think like, yeah, he, he was able to um, reassert himself, but on a, on a really honest kind of like playing field that like I'm doing whatever it is I want to do next and I'm going to see how that works out. And, you know, that, that stuff less so than 
um, so more so than Tim Machine, that stuff <coughs> would really endure in the legacy. You know, people get really excited talking about um, the Buddha of Suburbia soundtrack, which I don't love, but I think it's really decent. Um, and it's very interesting. And he was trying new stuff. Um, and then I love like One Outside. You know, I think it's a great Bowie album. It's really dark. Um, it's a bit more rocky, <clears throat> but it's not as in your face as uh, Scary Monsters. It is, like Steve said, it's a really rockist, guitar-heavy album, mainly due to Robert Fripp, but also just in terms of like the energy and fusion of the Dam Trio at that time. Um, you know, if there'd been like several albums of Bowie, and this is one they really cut loose and went quite pop, but also quite new wave as it was at the time. Um, so I love, I love the idea that like. You know, in the 90s, he, he really found his voice again by specifically not playing to any crowd, but kind of like pleasing himself. Um, and that was perhaps more, if not um, authentic, more sincere. Yeah, I think that's why uh, uh, it's probably my favorite Bowie record is it seems to be at this moment where he takes all the lessons learned uh, from the late seventies and he infuses them with some, you know, all, all of the, the, the production tricks and some of the weird, uh, mm -hmm. tone experiments, if you will. But then yeah. also, you know, you've got some, some songs on there that absolutely rock and shred. And that is, yeah, like you said, a lot of that has to do with Robert Fripp, who Robert Fripp for the most part in the low trilogy is doing more uh, tones and shading. He absolutely gets let loose on this record and gets to rock out, which yeah, he can be yeah. great at when he wants to. And it's wonderful. It's a, I, I love King Crimson. I love Robert Fripp. He's mm -hmm. a good guitar player and he's also a strange little man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that's fun. But it's also got some dancey tracks like, you know, fashion and um, yeah, yeah, it, it, that, which which kind of signals to some of the more I mean, uh, some of the more uh, you know stylings of the '80s and some of the more pop sensibilities that he that he, that he carries through. Um, it's just a good blend of those two things. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's like a perfect place in time. You've got the experimentation of the late '70s and the the eye to let's dance in the '80s uh, populism, if you will, is kind of creeping around the corner. It's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, um, I was just going to say, uh, as Steve was saying there, I think um, I mentioned this in the book as well. Something like uh, fashion, it has like some of the echoes of a single like fame, not just because it's fa fa fa, but because um, it's it's just got this really um, strong kind of groove thing, and it's a constant hook that just pulls you back in. You know, the fa fa, and then fame's got the do 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 do, like the riff from foot stomping that they. Um, so they rejig and um i just think like yeah those songs they bear a lot of like chemistry and bowie could see what had worked really well in 75 as a, a very poppy uh, hook driven song um just basically you know apply that same momentum and energy uh in 1980. go ahead eric oh yeah and i was i was just gonna say like i think the production on this is i think they'd learned a lot from their time with eno as far as texturing mm. songs and yeah. you know, swooping sound effects and like how you use your synth, not always just ripping synth riffs and synth leads, but using it more as like part of the tapestry. Um, not afraid of a little distortion, but warm distortion. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I just think, I, I, I think uh, I, doing our season on Bowie and the 
the stuff they did with Eno from outside to like the Berlin trilogy. I got a really big appreciation for just Eno produced stuff from the late seventies, early eighties talking heads, uh, you know, that like the way it infused world music with like cutting edge synth work and like sampling. Um, I think it changed the landscape on that. So not really a question, more of a comment as we're mm. talking about the production on this album, but, um, I think they probably learned a lot from their time with Eno. Yeah. On, on this one. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, cause obviously it was like, uh, Eno was always like, Oh, I'm not a musician. I'm not a producer. Um, you know, he's not Steve Albini. I'm not an engineer. He's just a guy who comes in and messes with stuff. And, you know, he has this real like, um, sandbox, you know, play theory kind of approach of how he describes himself, but he can do all those things really well. He can play piano really nicely and, you know, build really great little harmonies. Um, and it's the thing I obviously to remember is like, it's him and uh, Visconti and Bowie, I guess, um, on the Berlin yeah. records, like working really closely together and, each of them messing with things and disrupting the process, not just with the oblique strategy cards, but just in terms of um, all of them applying different things to the records so that it had like multiple things going on to the surface of it. As you say, like um, there's, for me, there's like a degree of part of the horror of uh, the Scary Monsters album, you know, it's weird darkness is um, just like the kind of body dysmorphia of the singing. So Bowie, like Teenage Wildlife, he's more or less left alone to just belt out this beautiful, um, heart-wrenching kind of ballad, right? Like Heroes, very clean. And then, um, you know, Scary Monsters and stuff, that it's like they're twisting the knob and it is like his voice is like coiling and snarling and getting compressed and distorted and it's like a broken mirror. And it's just like, oh my God, what is this? crazy freaky funhouse thing it's like well that's not going to be a single it's like oh okay maybe it will be and you know the the strangeness <laughs> into it all makes him genuinely alien alien and in that sense a little bit frightening and often angry you know where they push up like the gain on the mic and he's like shouting into your ear and you're like fuck's sake what's going on he he's kind of broken through the fourth wall a little bit um sonically and that makes the that makes the record really confrontational but also quite exciting. And he'd never do anything quite that in your face again. Like, for example, One Outside, very dark themes and stuff. But he didn't go like um, Marilyn Manson and turn everything up to 11. It's actually a bit more sedate. It's a bit more pop. It's a bit more um, jazz, clean, yeah. lounge music. Yeah, yeah, warm jazz tones. Uh, like, like you know, Black Tie, White Noise, very um, clean, almost commercial kind of sound. And perhaps that's disappointing. I'd, I'd love to have heard that record roughed up but um yeah he never went as crazy i don't think as he did um in 1980 with scary monsters and you know that's tony visconti doing a lot of that mm -hmm. um yep. and there's no Eno involved obviously so you, as you say you can see the progression right they took a few tricks and uh, from their time with him um but yeah and like yeah. uh we could go track by track uh adam you've got a lot of like really interesting points on here um uh, I had a whole question for ashes to ashes, but that's going to be a 30 minute conversation. So we'll, we'll save that for a follow-up maybe sometime. But uh, I, I, that, that, that was one of our favorite Bowie songs when we did our rankings, like ashes to ashes, obviously mm -hmm. it's kind of a, like the, the mission statement of scary monsters in a way. Um, but, and I also yeah. love how you do some, like, you do some like behind the scenes stories from the music video. There's a really funny story about a guy with a dog that I don't want to spoil here for the readers, but it, it, it's definitely worth your time. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, um, and so many good tracks on this album and 
like you said, experimental in your face. Um, and so like, I can't I re recommend this book enough for David Bowie fans or people just moderately interested in this like classic album. That's always on like top 100 lists for a reason. Um, so, so, you know, well done, Adam, you know, you're definitely a friend of the show and, uh, and, uh, I, I love the book and I'll, and I'll definitely keep yeah, checking out whatever, let's, whatever we do. Let's sound off again, Eric on, uh, or, or Adam name of the book where you can find it, uh, when it's out, all that important stuff. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, so name of the book, uh, silhouettes and shadows, uh, the secret history of David Bowie's scary monsters and super creeps, uh, available now in the U S from all good bookstores. Um, if you can find one, I know they're out there, <laughs> but there's like, you know, less and less. Um, so ideally go to an indie bookshop. Um, I recommend, uh, generally, um, in terms of online, I recommend bookshop.uk or .org. Um, they give money back to independent bookshops, uh, instead of, um, Amazon. and, uh, to find out more about the book, um, you can Google the name or, uh, go to my website, adamsteiner.uk that's adam s-t-e-i-n-e-r.uk and there's loads more info and links and extracts on there and uh at the end of your book and about the author you kind of drop where you're going next uh in your <laughs> in your and i will say that it's definitely a stamp of approval from pod like a whole we we're a big fan of this artist do you want to you want to give the <laughs> listeners a little a little uh, hint on that uh, yeah, sure. Um, my next book uh, coming out in December of this year, crikey, uh, is Darker with the Dawn, Nick Cave's Songs of Love and Death. Uh, that's a book looking over the entire uh, Nick Cave discography. Not every single song, um, but a broad broad sweep across um, all of his music with the Bad Seeds, uh, looking at core Nick Cave themes of um, love, loss, death, um, and especially these days, reflecting back on things like uh, his thoughts on religion, um, faith, grief, um, censorship, political correctness, uh, the role of the artist and what artists can do for the individual uh, and on a wider social uh, level. So yeah, the, the gamut of uh, Nick Cave, but not necessarily all encompassing. That's a full meal. The, uh, the, the Nick cave experience. That's, that was almost our third season. We went a different direction. So that's, 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 uh, that's great. And you're not going to have any, um, you're not going to have any trouble trying to find material for that. The guy likes to, he puts his ideas out there for interpretation. So awesome. I look forward to that. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, Nick Cave next as the next the next uh, the next uh, subject, and uh, and I, I can't wait to read that. That'll be great. So, uh, well, thank you so much, Adam, for for coming on. Your book's fantastic, and um, we'll get some links out there when we when we drop this episode. Uh, everyone should check it out. Great, cool. Thank you for having me. Of course, yeah. And thank you for you know you're a great writer, but more so you're a patient. You're a patient man patient with a, a, a dumb American who can't just look at the world clock app and figure out that we're an eight hour difference, not a six hour difference and uh, take away a little. Yeah, but I should know this because like, 
<laughs> you know, Pacific Standard. It's it's exactly where it was when I left it uh, two three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, I yeah. we have so much in common. Our societies. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, well, thank you, and thank you for your patience. And it was so great talking to you again. Thank you. Throw a rock against the road, and it breaks into pieces. Thank you so much for listening to another special B-side episode of Pod Like a Whole. Big thanks to our friend of the show, Adam Steiner. Check out his book, Silhouettes and Shadows. Uh, please check out our next episode. Uh, well, we will be reviewing Florence and the Machine, uh, track by track, the album Ceremonials. Um, this is Eric, and if you want to support the show, check out Facebook. Uh, check us out on Instagram or Threads. Um, and please, uh, uh, by all means, uh, if you feel like uh, flipping us a, a coin, tip us a little bit, uh, buy us a cup of coffee, go to ko-fi.com slash pod like a hole. That's ko-fi.com slash pod like a hole. Thank you so much, listeners. Hope we brought you closer to pod.